Hey, this is Mark. Over the past few years, pharma manufacturers have been learning how to harness the power of the patient voice. The so-called patient-directed approach has shown up in drug development, which entails inviting a diverse group of patients to co-create on the design of clinical trials and continuously collaborating with them to ensure treatments have value for a broader set of people. It's also been seen in the post-marketing area, where once the drug is approved, companies try to continuously learn from patients in the real world as they use those drugs. Regulators from FDA to EMA and other regulatory associations are asking pharma companies to engage patients in co-creation, and the trend accelerated during the pandemic as pharma rallied around the patient in a time of need. But what COVID also highlighted was the fact that most organizations simply didn't have a good grasp of how the patient experience evolves and changes over time and how to put patients at the forefront. This week on the podcast, why is pharma taking so long to move toward patient centricity? I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMNM Podcast, medical marketing and media's show about healthcare marketing writ large. We'll speak with Hensley Evans, who leads the patient and consumer health practice at ZS Associates, about why being patient-centric is a shift many companies have yet to make, and how drug makers can create more avenues to connect with patients directly. Hensley also has a new book out on that topic, which she co-wrote with a colleague, and she'll share examples of progress as well as where the industry still needs to improve. Hensley, how are you? And welcome to the MMM Podcast. Hi, Mark. I'm great. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. I can't believe it's taken us this long uh, to, to speak face to face, but I'm glad we're uh, doing so about this topic, which is really a very important one. Yeah, we're really excited about the book, as I'm sure anybody who's uh, written and published a book knows it's a it's a labor of love. And so it's really exciting to see it in print and hear back from some of our clients, uh, you know, who are reading it and, and finding it uh, to be a helpful resource. Great. Yeah, terrific. Let's, let's just start with that. The book is called Reinventing Patient Centricity, Bringing Patient-Led Business Models to, to Life. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, you wrote it along with a colleague. Tell us how it came about. Yeah, so, you know, I've been working in patient centricity related themes for a really long time. I've been at ZS for nine years now, and before that was in the marketing agency world for a long time. I won't say exactly how, how long, but uh, at any rate, one of the things I noticed was that we were doing a lot of different research and a lot of different work with clients on aspects of patient centricity in um, early clinical development or in patient services or in how to get great patient insights in rare patient um, populations. And I noticed connections between all these different pieces and parts. Um, And I thought some of the real aha moments for me were not on the individual topics, but you know, as we started to look across all of them, some of the themes that emerged around patient centricity and around how organizations were or were not making progress around building capabilities to become more patient-centric. And so one morning on a run, uh, you know, it, it occurred to me that like maybe one way to bring this all together would be to write a book and to invite a lot of my collaborators at, at ZS um, who I've been working with over the past nine years uh, to contribute to that book in, in areas of their own expertise. So uh, the idea was born. Uh, that was a year and a half ago. And so, uh, like I said, it's it's been uh, it's been a labor of love to uh, to sort of bring it bring it all together. 
Sure, right, and you and you wrote uh, numerous colleagues from ZS. I think contributed to, to the different chapters, uh, and the book is available on, on Amazon. We should we should mention. Um, let's talk about how you define patient centricity. I know ZS, you know, which which traditionally takes a very scientific approach to whatever kind of uh, catalyst they're talking about, always kind of breaks things down in a helpful way. So, how did you kind of break that down into various dimensions? Yeah, so starting starting back in probably 2017, we were working with a couple of different clients who had asked about how they could build internal capabilities to to move towards more patient-centric decision-making, more, more patient-oriented ways of doing business. And so we started benchmarking organizations and looking at how they organized, uh, you know, what different uh, parts of their functional capabilities were that related to, to patient-centricity. And really, four key dimensions emerged um, that were consistent across all of the organizations that that we were that we were working with at that time. And those four dimensions were leadership and culture, structure and practices, data analytics and technology, which is a huge chunk, and cross industry collaboration or, or partnership. And so e- each of those has their own sort of, uh, you know, sub, uh, subcategories, I guess. But, you know, to, to summarize it at a high level, leadership and culture is really about the strategic vision and the mindset of the organization with regard to putting the patient at, at the center of decision making. Structure and practices is really more about business practice, governance, decision making, um, how you organize, where patient centricity or patient functions sit within the organization. Um, Data analytics and technology, I think, is sort of the backbone, the infrastructure to be able to take in uh, the patient insights that you need to make decisions and then create the patient experience, um, whether that's in the R&D space or in the commercial space, um, that is is integrating those insights um, into an improved sort of Patient, patient experience and hopefully a better patient outcome. And then, you know, cross-industry collaboration winds up being the fourth dimension and it, it's last but definitely not least. I mean, one of the things we see is that as the healthcare ecosystem becomes more and more connected, it is critical that organizations develop the capability to really partner with other entities in that in that healthcare ecosystem and not just you know hire them as vendors right i think pharma is very good at vendor relationships but not as good at at true partnerships right and that may mean health tech organizations providers payers um, you know and any number of uh, other types of of organizations that are part of the patient healthcare experience yeah, that, that's a really good uh, point that we've seen over the years um, that, you know, hiring versus partnering uh, theme. But um, let's let's benchmark things a little bit. You know, you've been men- measuring industry's progress against this goal for a number of years. I be- believe the last time you did it was in mid-2019, and uh, that gives us a sort of a pre-COVID uh, benchmark. What did you find at that time in terms of the gap between optimism, like wanting to be patient-centric, and the reality of having made the necessary investments yeah, so I mean, we've done a number of studies over the years. So one of the studies we did in 2019 um, was an industry survey. We partnered with what is now uh, Reuters, but was at that time Ifer Pharma, to survey uh, industry leaders, uh, executives uh, who worked in the patient space. Um, and one of the most notable things that we found was that 
almost all of them, 93% basically said that um, they believed that a focus on patient-centric leadership and patient-centric culture within their organization was an important priority for them and and for their teams. Um, But less than a quarter of them, 19%, said that they had made significant progress in building patient-centric leadership um, and culture within their organizations. Now, now that was 2019. Um, We have done some external benchmarking of how organizations are making progress around the the four dimensions um, of of leadership. And we updated that in in 2021. So not post-COVID. I'm not sure when we're ever going to be truly post-COVID. But um, but we do see progress. And, and interestingly, um, leadership and culture um, is the dimension that we see the most advancement in overall um, as an organization. So I think um, COVID actually uh, really did kickstart in many organizations um, a, a recognition of the criticality of really partnering with patients um, and and co-creating with patients solutions that were going to work um, as uh, you know you mentioned as the sort of changing uh, patient experience evolves in response to external uh, and and patient driven um, you know changes okay so so you've measured it uh, in, in 2021 to a certain extent and you found that leadership and culture was was more, where the most progress has been made um, but uh, you know, take us through the early pandemic as well in, in terms of how COVID proved that it's possible for pharma to be more patient-centric. Yeah, you know, I think there were a lot of interesting examples, um, you know, in in early in early COVID days of pharma really having to pivot very quickly. I mean, I, I think speed is not something that pharma is always known for, um, but uh, but but it turns out they can move quickly when they need to. Um, and so, as you know, one of the first things that we saw happening with COVID in terms of the patient experience is that patients were afraid um, to go to physicians' offices. Right. Uh, they didn't want to go out and be in a, um, a healthcare setting where people who might be sick were. Um, and so they were staying home. And I think you see some really interesting trends in terms of telehealth um, and patient participation in telehealth, but also um, pharma partnership um, with telehealth providers to try to ensure that patients are able to get access to um, the non-urgent um, but very important healthcare that they that they need. Um, so we saw multiple examples of organizations partnering with telehealth providers um, to try to help um, patients access um, healthcare, and and we saw some significant trends uh, in terms of adoption of of telehealth on the part of patients because they much rather be sitting in front of their computer waiting. Uh, on Zoom, uh, than sitting in a in a crowded uh, physician's office uh, waiting, and and we we think that some of those changes um, are likely to be highly durable, um, because once you've figured out how to get online and configure your computer and set up whatever uh, platform you need for that telehealth consult, um, you've done it once. And so it becomes that much easier the next time and the next time. So um, while we, we have seen a little bit of a leveling out of that of that telehealth adoption trend, as an example, um, I, I do think that that some of those changes are really going to going to endure. Um, you know, you also saw some some organizations adopting some solutions from a patient services perspective that honestly, I, I wish I wish we'd done 
five years ago, um, I, I remember one organization that, that we spoke to that said that they had um, uh, adopted a new uh, sort of uh, in-home uh, delivery solution um, for their in- injectable product that was typically, um, you know, injected in the doctor's office. Um, but they had created a, a you know, a partnership with a with a licensed nursing uh, provider uh, that would go to patients' homes and uh, provide the injection in their homes, so the patients didn't have to go to the doctor's office. And you know, I, I remember asking. I said, "Well, that's that's great. Was that kind of a, a new a new insight that the patients didn't want to go to doctors' offices?" And they said, "Well, no. Patients had always said that they didn't really like going to doctors' offices; that it wasn't terribly convenient. But of course, when COVID happened." they stopped doing it, right? It, it's not that, that it was just inconvenient, but they stopped going. Um, so it became a, an urgent problem for, for Pharma to solve. And, and my hope is that going forward, we'll, we'll act in advance of that being an urgent problem to solve and you know say, hey, we know that patients would find it to be more convenient, um, that they might be more adherent to their therapy. And so let's put programs like this in place before they become a, an absolute business necessity um, because they'll they'll serve a better patient experience or a better patient outcome. Hmm. So we saw some of those kind of real-time improvements take place in addition to things like, as you, other things you pointed out, like patient panels, you know, checking in with them um, on, on the impact of the patient experience. Connecting with patient av- advocacy groups is something that pharma has also been doing. Um, to get a pulse on critical needs and leveraging the field force to hear from doctors about where their patients need the most help. So in addition to those kinds of things going on in the background, as you point out, you also had these other things like telehealth and some really interesting patient services. Uh, the other thing is that, you know, we should say about the, the pandemic is that it showed that companies are far from putting patients at the heart of their business. Uh, and where, where do organizations still have to do work in becoming more patient-centric? What, what are the actual barriers? I think you kind of narrowed it down to like four main ones, right? Yeah, I mean, I think there are um, there are still some barriers that are um, that are true barriers, and then there are perceived barriers. Um, and and I think what's interesting to me around the perceptions is that I still hear uh, people talking about legal frameworks or regulatory concerns as as barriers. And, you know, one of the things that um, I think organizations are starting to recognize from a compliance perspective is that if you're dependent variable, right, if your end goal is an improved patient outcome, um, that tends to be a great starting point to uh, avoid, you know, regulatory or compliance challenges. If your end goal is revenue or uh, a longer time on therapy, uh, then uh, you know you, you start you start to kind of run into some potential um, conflicts. But um, but I think those barriers, the legal, regulatory, compliance barriers, are are becoming. Um, much more perception than than reality. I think that the key barriers that we identified that are that are still real in most of our client organizations that we're working with are first and foremost organizational silos, right? And which is not to say, I mean, the, the sort of functional structure of most pharma organizations around research and development, you know, early clinical development. Um, and then moving into commercial make a ton of sense. They're very different functions. They require different skill sets, et cetera. But the patient is the same person, right? The, the same patient that is um, you know, participating in a clinical trial is still going to, unfortunately, you know, be managing that 
chronic disease uh, when, when you bring your product to market. So thinking about how to um, transcend those organizational silos, we, we just hear, um, you know, frequently that, you know, trying to work across different functional parts of the organization. And that may even mean between the brand and the insights and analytics teams, um, you know, that, that, that don't sit in vastly different places in the organization, but are still, you know, functionally separated. So that's one, the organizational silos and working across that. I think a second is just sort of a lack of consistency um, of, of approach. Um, and I think organizations are starting now to move from a sort of pilot phase to a grow and scale phase with their um, patient-focused initiatives. Um, but you know, e- even now you see a lot of organizations where the approach taken to building patient relationships or build relationships with patient advocacy groups is very, very different from business unit to business unit or brand, brand to brand. Um, I think the, the other two kind of key barriers, one is sort of a, a struggle to measure the impact and the quantifiable impact of patient-centered initiatives, um, you know, because in some cases of legal and regulatory challenges, we don't necessarily want to make everything that we do about patients about an ROI. But at the same time, we have to, um, you know, be able to demonstrate that uh, our patient-focused initiatives are having an impact on the patient, certainly first and foremost, but also on on our organization. Um, and I think that relates directly to the to the fourth challenge, which is just struggling to communicate the case for change, right? What we've done historically has been very successful as, as pharmaceutical organizations. We've brought great products that have, you know, life-changing impact on patients to market. Um, and so why, why do we need to do things radically differently, right? Can't we, can't we just change around the edges? So I think those are the four key barriers that, um, that, the, that the industry is still sort of struggling with. Sure, sure. And seeing these barriers, it's it's clearer to to understand, you know, why um, you found earlier that overwhelmingly, uh, you know, more than ninety percent of, of executives agreed that patient centricity is critical to their success, but only you know twenty percent believe they made any any real progress at it. Uh, but um, they're slowly progressing. Uh, it seems, and considering the patient in business decisions. In fact, you've written that the rare disease space is further along in this regard. Can you explain why? Yeah, so I think one of the things that the rare disease space and, and specialty in general, but but rare disease in particular, um, you know, realized early on is that the patient journey um, for individuals who are suffering from a condition that that's you know rare or you know in, in some cases just very difficult to diagnose um, is is really long and and challenging um, and there are lots of opportunities I think for the pharmaceutical uh, manufacturers to do things that can help improve that journey dramatically right um, from you know, helping to build awareness that, you know, helps shorten the time to diagnosis. And in some rare diseases, you have um, the time from uh, initial symptom recognition to uh, accurate diagnosis can be three, five, even even more years. Um, and during all that time, the patient's struggling to find a, a solution because until you get an accurate diagnosis, you obviously can't um, figure out what the right treatment um, path will will be for for you. Um, 
or whether it's really around ensuring that once that accurate diagnosis is made, that patients have access um, to the medicine that they need, that they have the financial support that they need to ensure that they can get started on therapy and, and stay on therapy. And, you know, in, in rare disease in, in particular, I think you don't have, um, you know, big groups of patients sitting within payers, for example, that makes it important for the payer to solve for some of these pain points or big groups of patients um, sitting within, you know, provider um, organizations, unless that provider has a, you know, very specific specialty um, in that in that rare disease. So pharma is sort of uniquely positioned um, to, um, you know, be able to see across, I mean, a, a pharmaceutical manufacturer that's, that's brought a drug to market for a particular rare disease has, you know, the, the resources as well as the knowledge of the patient challenges um, and can, you know, partner um, to, to help address some of those, some of those key challenges. So we do see, um, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of opportunity for, for pharma to help those, those patients, um, you know, in those, in those categories. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, and on the flip side, you've also found that some of the incentives that pharma companies have used are actually deprioritizing patient engagement opportunities. Uh, one of the places you pointed out was in the traditional drug discovery and development model. Can you explain that? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, in, in traditional drug discovery and, and development, there there's often been, a, you know, certainly Wall Street um, places a, a priority on sort of, you know, uh, you know, first patient, uh, first dose, right? So how are we getting patients quickly in, into trials um, and, and getting those trials launched um, and, and moving forward? What, what we've really identified is that it's a much better policy to get the patient input to the trial design, the trial protocol early on. Um, we've done some really interesting studies um, in partnership with Tufts to look at how to measure patient burden in clinical trials. And there's a direct correlation between, or an inverse correlation between the patient burden and trial enrollment success. Um, So while it seems like um, delaying trial to integrate patient feedback and patient co-creation of trial protocols and trial design um, may be seen negatively by Wall Street, right? Hey, why aren't they launching their trial as quickly as possible for this promising asset? Um, we found that, you know, taking the time that's required to build in that patient feedback early on can make the trial much more successful, both in in terms of enrollment, you know, being able to successfully recruit patients into the trial and retention in the trial. And it's way more expensive to rescue a trial um, when it's not meeting its uh, enrollment targets um, uh, after the fact than, than it is to spend a little bit of extra time up front uh, to ensure that, um, you know, that the trial design is taking into account um, patient needs and, and potential challenges. Sure. And, and contributing to, to better products overall. And that's a good yeah, that's a good final question uh, here for you, Hensley. What, what's the low-hanging fruit that pharma companies can do to sharpen their focus on the patient? I think you had kind of narrowed it down to three areas. Uh, what, what would you leave our audience with in that regard? Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's a couple of things that um, that organizations can do, and and I sometimes talk about the three or the four eyes, right? I mean, I think the the first is patient insights, um, and I think that. Um, you know, all of us suffer from um, from this uh, 
thinking sometimes that we can put ourselves into someone else's shoes. I can imagine what um, a patient with X and Y condition um, might be feeling or thinking or what they might need. And I think uh, many years of experience doing actual patient research has taught me at least that I'm terrible at imagining what um, what patients might might want or need, and that you know talking directly to patients, gaining access to patient insights through working with patient advocacy groups that are excellent um, representatives of, of sort of the patient perspective and the patient need is a, a critical critical first step. And and you know although it's um, as I as I mentioned in the clinical trial, you know maybe, maybe it takes a little bit of extra time to to take that step. Um, it's it's really important and it's quite difficult, I think, for people who don't have direct personal experience um, with a particular condition to imagine that they know um, what patients might want or or need. So so that's you know step step one. I think step two is thinking about integrating those insights into our decision making, and I think um, you know. Um, interrogating uh, our decision-making to say, hey, now that we know this new thing about uh, patients or our patient needs, um, what are we going to do differently? What are we going to say yes to that we wouldn't have said yes to before? What are we going to say no to that we would have done in the past, right? So if those insights don't get integrated into decision-making, you no, they're not. They're not being used um, very well. And then I think that the, the third piece is, you know, improving the patient experience. I think um, some of the reasons why we've highlighted that data infrastructure and technology is so important as the sort of the backbone. Um, uh, and we see a lot of organizations investing to improve their their patient data capabilities, their their patient technology. Um, is that that's really the way that we're now delivering um, the experience to patients. The vast majority of, of, our, of our patient um, experiences are, are now being delivered through the digital channel. We talk about patient first, digital first. Um, and so, you know, building the capabilities to be able to deliver that improved patient experience um, uh, is, is, really, is really critical because, you know, otherwise those insights and the integration of those insights into decision making, if that doesn't translate into... Uh, a better, improved patient experience, um, then, you know, it, it's not going to have the impact that you want, which is ultimately, I think, a, an improved patient outcome, um, you know, for, for all of that work. Sure. And as you pointed out, it's not for a lack of having enough uh, boots on the ground, so to speak, uh, that have experience in this area. I think you found um, uh, half and half in terms of the number of people in your studies who have professed experience in this area uh, versus those who have, uh, you know, are earlier, early in their careers in terms of uh, patient experience, um, in sort of improving the patient experience. Experience. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so they, right. they, they, they do seem to be making strides from from a workforce standpoint. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, I, I think we're seeing more and more um, organizations actually looking to, you know, hire people into dedicated roles, focusing on patient experience, patient um, patient solutions, patient support. Um, and so, uh, so I, I, I think that the trends are moving um, in in the right direction. You know, our our hope with the with the book is actually that by providing some examples um, and and some um, some industry best practices that that we can help accelerate that that trend. Indeed. All right, it's fa- it was a fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for joining us, Hensley. Thanks so much, Mark. Great to talk to you. 
That's it for this week. If you like this episode, please give it a thumbs up. Better yet, subscribe on your podcasting platform of choice and help others discover the show. The MMNM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Deborah Stahl, Bradley Weems, and Gordon Failer. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. We're out every week. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.